1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast and The Times, I'm Matt Chorley. This is part two of our special event recorded with Ed Balls, former Shadow Chancellor and now star of Strictly, and Philip Webster, former political editor of The Times. And in the second half, we opened it up to questions which covered everything from what are the Strictly judges really like to what does Ed Balls think of Tony Blair? Um, uh, Now, I think we're now going to say goodbye to our friends on Facebook, so thanks for watching. Oh, but they weren't watching Um, now, were they? I think so. Oh, I am
2: sorry. Yeah.
3: (laughs)
1: Yes, they've gone now. (laughs) Okay. You can tell your really filthy stories. (laughs) No, don't, please. Uh, So let's now um, open it up to questions. I saw lots of you have got questions. Um, I will do my best because there are quite a lot of you and there are microphones. So let's go... Where were the people with microphones, first of all? Uh, Over here and over there. Not near anybody with their hands up. Right, let's go for... There's a hand there. That's good. So we'll go for the lady there and then if we can get the microphone to the gentleman here. But if the microphone on this side could go to the lady there... And then get the microphone to the gentleman there. Then we will be laughing, well, or
4: not. Ed, if you ask me this question, the answer is yes. Do you have any plans for the 28th of April next year?
2: Well, I th- yeah. So the, um, we, talked it's like about- <laughs> <laughs> we talked earlier about a riddle. We talked earlier about social media and Twitter and how it's transformed oh. things. <laughs> oh yes. But, um, I um, famously. In error, in my pocket, tweeted my own name on the 28th. Was of it April. in your pocket? Was he? You were searching it? for your name. No, it was back in. It was actually back in my pocket by was that it? time. Was it? Dude, you don't want the full story. Not really. No, no honestly, don't. He honestly. tweeted
1: his own name <laughs> by mistake, <laughs> and it became known as Ed, Ed balls, balls Day, Day. And, um, it's been, and it's now a thing every year that people tweet.
2: I get Ed wrong. Balls.
1: I now get rung. I have, have
2: newspaper inquiries from. Canada, America, India, <laughs> Australia, it's a sort of global phenomenon. I actually went out and did, um, I waited this speech last autumn in a, a business conference in Miami, Miami Beach, and it was a kind of quite dissolute kind of conference, but I turned up to do a speech about challenges in the global economy, and I met the organizers um, b- um, the, the night before the speech to say, What do you want from me? And they said, <laughs> The only reason we invited you was because we wanted to meet the person who tweeted his own name on Ed Balls Day. So uh, <laughs> there we are, so, there oh, yeah, we yeah. are, I mean I've, I've moved from one sort of infamy yeah. to um, <laughs> another, but anyway, I, d- I don't know, but I think, I think it, might end up, um, it might end up being dance related. I was going to say dance, dance related, yeah. some
1: sort of high yeah. kicking Ed Balls Me and yeah. Phil,
2: actually maybe, maybe me and Matt will do sort of something to we could do
1: We'll do Gangnam Style on Ed Balls Day. You'd have
2: to be Katya. <laughs>
1: We're not doing the Ophelia Balls joke, though, are we? <laughs> no. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure I need to bring you in, Phil, on Ed Balls Day. No, 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 no fine. I'll, I'll let you in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the gentleman there with the... Uh, mm-hmm. Have you got the microphone? No, not yeah. yet. <laughs> have you? Somebody's got the microphone. I've got a microphone. You've got, yeah, very good. good. It's, a it's a different person, that's fine, we'll do that next um, job, Mr. B- Ed, um, we've obviously heard about your time on Strictly, which was a terrific achievement, but the judges are an important part of Strictly. What's your opinion of the four of them and which one do you like least or perhaps dislike the most? Well, the judges are the enemies of the people, aren't they? That's, uh, <laughs> exactly. In the current mood.
2: I think um, they are... Um, but look, it's an entertainment show and I think they all play it up a little bit, but it's also in the end a dance competition. And the public have 50% of their vote, and the public can vote for who they want to see and who improves the most and who enjoys it the most. But the judges are looking at um, you know, how much you've improved as a dancer and how good you are. And um, you know, there were times when I thought that they were a bit harsh on me. And there were times when they, I thought that they didn't always give me enough credit for getting better. But did I deserve to be bottom the leaderboard pretty much every week? Yeah. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, you were there. And, I, and I, think that, I think Len Goodman in particular. You know, in politics, you've got, to be, you've got to be wise and balanced and have integrity and be trusted by people to know what you're talking about and make good judgments. And I think that's um, what Len Goodman does.
1: Phil, you were there on Saturday night. They were harsh, man. What they? did you think when you were sitting there in the front row to see what was once one of your best contacts? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a totally bizarre evening, but a wonderful evening. Coming back to the judges, I mean, we did get to sort of see uh, people after the show. I think they were, everybody there, everybody I spoke to on Saturday night was genuinely sorry that Ed was going and that included the judges as well. There's no doubt that they felt they had to do what they had to do. We, as observers, felt that um, they, they'd marked him down a bit. Certainly, yeah. uh, Craig, we, th- we, we thought Ed was worth more than four the, um, <laughs> uh, the other night, but we th- were biased. Uh, Thanks, um, um, uh But um, yes, it was strange, but anybody who's known Ed as long as I have and played as many football matches with him knows that he can't do anything in anything other than a 100% way. Casualty wards all over London after football matches. <laughs> Bear witness to the, some of the tackles that Ed's put in over the, uh, over the years. He can't play a game of football unless he's giving absolutely everything. And I must, just one other little thing. Um, Norwich haven't been doing so well lately, football team. We're not gonna talk about that much. But there was the AGM at Norwich last week, the annual general meeting. Ed took time off from um, uh, training to go up to Norwich, and one shareholder. Because I'm, I'm the chair of the board. He's, he's chairman. And one. So I had to kind of go. One. Uh, one shareholder turned to uh, Ed during the AGM last week, and he said, "Mr. Chairman, you've given us a lot more fun over the last few weeks than your football team."
2: <laughs> <laughs> he did. True. We well, actually. And there was another one who said. Um, who said you showed commitment, energy, passion, and desire. Do you have anything to teach um, the first team? And I said I said I've been bottom of the league nine times out of ten. And they're sixth. I think they've got more to teach me than the other way around. So um put the record straight.
1: Earlier on you were talking about how you'd united the nation, Norwich and Ipswich and Labour and Conservative. For a and, moment. For a moment. But and all this week you've been doing lots of media is the Person who left Strictly at the weekend, and everybody's asked you, would you go back into politics? And you've given a very politician's answer. So I'm going to try. Can you envisage any way that you would go back into politics?
2: I've, um, the thing about Strictly. Is it's so public and open and huge that you can't you can't you can't tell a story or conceal the reality. If people thought that I was doing this because I was really trying to get back to politics and it was all a strategy, I think, think people would have seen through that. And let's be honest, would I have been a Zoolander male model if I was trying to get back to politics? I mean, these pictures are killing. If we're honest for the um, for the for the future. So, but but people have asked that in the last couple of days. I try and give you a really totally straight answer, which is. Um, I really miss politics. It's so purposeful. It's so important. You have such a responsibility—the in the decisions you make—compared to anything that I've done uh, since. And you know, on strictly, it's about me. But when you're a cabinet minister, you're doing things on behalf of millions of people. And. For good or or bad and in a very powerful way and so i miss the purpose and also with brexit and all the other things going on you know of course there's not a part of me which is not thinking you know should i be doing that instead and every now and then when we were training you know something would happen there was an interview i was doing with the times once where at the end just before the end of lunch we were getting back to training and the um journalist asked me a question about brexit and katya said to him will you not ask any more about brexit and then she turned to me and said stop thinking about the country the country's not going anywhere focus on your training because yeah. that's what matters today and um which is uh, so and and so but 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 you know, every now and then i was doing i was doing the um um the the salsa or was it the the jive <laughs> while the autumn statement was going on <laughs> and the realization no, that that's what like i was doing and there's a part of which you kind i of thought is that really how it is? So, so if I said to you, I would never want to go back, I totally rule it out, I hate politics, there's no purpose, all of that would be ridiculous, because of course there's a bit of me which hankers, and that's why I've sort of said never say never. But realistically, um, I had 20 years, I lost my seat, I'm not planning to go back, there's no plan to do so, um, I'd be really disappointed if I didn't do something else in public service again in my, in my life. But is that likely to be being elected? I don't think so. And um, you can call that a politician's answer. I think it's just the, the most open, straight way in which I can answer it. There's no plans, but would I ever say never? I don't think so, because there's always a part
1: of me which hankers. If, if Donald Trump could become US president, there's you know anything well, can happen.
2: The only thing yeah. which worries me about Donald Trump is he may have been a reality TV star, but... And he's quite orange. But, but you can't be... A, well, that's true. <laughs> he, but you can't be a reality TV president. Yeah. You know, if you... What, yeah. what makes... Lord Sugar or him on that programme or us on a Saturday night, what is our impact? It's that we take risks, we're surprised, it's dramatic, Um, you know, you stir things up and fundamentally it doesn't matter. (laughs) Whereas if you are um, the president, sometimes you have to take risks, but it matters so much. And you have to build consensus and you have to take people with you and the idea that you can be tweeting you know i'm the only one who knows who will be eliminated and who will get to my cabinet makes you sort of think my gosh if he actually governs as a reality tv president that would be utterly catastrophic these are such different realms and um it would be a fool who mixed them up and i hope
1: he doesn't one of the things phil in i think it's the penultimate chapter of your book is it's called purpose isn't it yeah and it's about Doing things, and I'm, I, I was struck, because I remember uh, when I read it, and uh, it's sort of qu- people sort of say to political journalists because some political journalists go into politics. Did that ever cross your mind to do? Never to no, do that.
3: No, I, I mean I've never ever been um, uh, part of any party, so I, I wouldn't even know where to go. Um, I wouldn't know which party to join. Well, or you whatever. wouldn't know
1: where to go now um, either, would you? That's part of the problem.
3: But well, <laughs> I was going to say there are there are two. Th- in, in sort of speaking about Ed here, there are two things. He's been in politics long enough to know that present day popularity can last for that just a day and uh, Ed Ball's The Dancer can be very popular with the Daily Mail and and other conservative papers but the moment he's even talking about going back into um, politics life would change. The other thing is again even in the time since Ed has been out of Parliament, the Labour Party has changed so drastically at the grassroots. Uh, For Ed to get back into the Parliament, even if he was thinking about it, he would have to go through the selection process, whatever. And for for all I know, I mean, all these constituency parties all over the country, membership has been growing considerably. Uh, They're not all people who spend their Saturday nights watching strictly. In fact, they're far more likely to be at the constituency general management committee, passing some ridiculous motion or other. So, Edward has quite a job. At which point
2: Phil reveals his true
3: view. <laughs> 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 he's never been involved in any party. But <laughs> yeah. he's not um, totally and so there is that. Yeah. There's that to think about. There, he doesn't. He's not a shoo-in. I'll refer
1: you to the answer that my
3: colleague gave a
2: moment ago.
1: (laughs) Your spokesman. Well, let's have another question. Who's got a question? Uh, There's a hand shot up there. I I, I can't see... Oh, yes, I can. There's a lady with a red jumper on. There's a microphone coming behind you. There we go. Hi. Um,
0: If Eric Joyce were a pacifist teetotaler, who would be leader of the Labour Party today?
1: I love this. I love this conspiracy theory. If Eric Joyce hadn't gone into the sports and social and thrown a punch... There wouldn't have been all the hoo-ha about uh, the unite attempt to take over his seat. Ed Miliband wouldn't have—this is what, correct me if I'm wrong. Ed Miliband wouldn't have cracked down on the union influence on the leadership, therefore opening it up to the three-pound members, which then delivered Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader. So all of this wow. is Eric Joyce's fault.
3: We're blaming Eric Joyce for what happened. I'm to not. The- but this is a, this is the. I do quite like it, though, as a, as a conspiracy theory. I think the Labour Party was, uh, after that happened and after Ed Miliband made those changes, the Labour Party then didn't go out and sell its reforms. The Labour Party could, at that point, have turned itself into a proper mass membership party and used the, the, the £3 thing to get more people in. In fact, it was, uh, you know, I, in there, I covered the, uh, the Kinnicks battle with the hard left, as we called it, back in the 80s. And it was quite a battle and in the end militant uh, were beaten off. This time the hard left were invited back in. Um, they, the door was open, they didn't have to fight, it, they were invited back in. But I, I think there is some blame to be attached to the Labour Party leadership for not taking those Miliband reforms and trying to make more of them at the time. I think, I think we wouldn't have been in that situation where MPs had to vote for Corbyn, even though they didn't want him to be, uh, to be leader. But um, I don't know whether you agree with that or not.
2: Sorry, I thought, we were about,
1: uh, <laughs> I, thought I was about to get away with not answering that. Um, <laughs> we don't want another story about Strictly either. We want an answer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think um,
1: the surge
2: which you saw for Jeremy Corbyn after um, 2015 and the surge you saw for Donald Trump in America um, some of the, th- you know, th- what happened around um, Brexit and the sort of anti-establishment nature of its campaign, these are all of a of a of a piece. And so I think that um, Jeremy Corbyn is a is is one product of a sort of wider reaction against um, the 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 established order, and in this case the established lead- the kind of leadership and direction of the Labour Party. So I think um, that that something like this would have happened uh, anyway. Um, I also think that there would have been pressure on Ed Miliband to reform the Electoral College and um, Labour Party, um, independent of whether Falkirk had uh, occurred. Um, the interesting thing about um, the move to one member, one vote, which is really the biggest problem, and I, don't, I disagree with Phil, I don't think that, that it was that we didn't sell the reforms well enough. I think they were the wrong reforms. I don't think we should have done those, um, those reforms, but you had a, a coalition of, um, Unite and the supporters of David Miliband who all thought that moving to one member one vote would be a good, good idea. And in retrospect, that was a terrible um, judgment. I don't think that, you, that Len McCluskey's view of Labour was um, formed by what happened in Falkirk, although it may have been confirmed or strengthened by, um, by that. So, of course, as we said earlier, you know, the, um, in politics it's never possible to prove the counterfactual. So who knows what would have happened if that hadn't happened? But my, my kind of instinct is there would have been a reform to the party's constitution, and there would have been a post-2015 um, left surge. And um, but the particular constellation which happened was obviously utterly catastrophic.
1: If a if, a, cou- if a couple of hundred people in Morley and Outwood had voted the other way, and you'd kept your seat, what would you have done? Would you have been one of those who served no. Jeremy Corbyn? Would you have? Done like a vet and taken as a select committee, or
2: my biggest um, my biggest worry was that um, you know I'd done five years in opposition and I'd been around for a long time. It was a vet's turn to go for the leadership. If um, if we won if the Conservatives won a majority, which I never expected to to happen, none of us did, I don't think. It was definitely better for me to be out of Parliament. So I was um, you know in, in, in personally relieved, even if I was publicly upset about what had happened to party in the direction of the country and I think if vet had been a leadership candidate I would have had to keep a very very low uh, profile and then given the way things then then um, developed um, I think I would just have just had to sort of stand stand away not not necessarily stand aside but stand away um, it, it, it was Jeremy Corbyn and I as with Jeremy Corbyn and many people in the um, the parliamentary labor party although we Fight under the leader, labour. The label labour. We have really quite divergent views on very, some very, very big and central issues, and I'm not sure they would have been reconcilable. So I'm afraid I think um, that I would have been keeping a low profile, and maybe I don't know what would have happened. Another counterfactual.
1: There's another question. Uh, a home for a natural lefty. Like me. A political home for a natural lefty. The,
2: the only way in which. Um, there can be a proper choice with the Conservatives at the next general election is if the Labour Party reaches into the centre, centre centre-left vote. Some people who may have voted Green or Socialist Party who will vote Labour who might not have done, but the opinion polls tell us at the moment there's lots of people who might have voted Labour who aren't going to do so, and we have to win those back. I think it's very unlikely that um, they will go to the Liberal Democrats. I think that um, that uh, it's very important that we uh, see off the challenge from UKIP because of all the wider ramifications that could uh, bring. So I hope that the Labour Party can emerge as the, the natural party of centre-left government in the way the Conservatives have been the natural party of centre-right government for the last 100 years. But that's going to be a big challenge. And will that be a choice you will feel comfortable at in the next election? Well, I hope so, but I think that's still
1: um, to be seen. I, I will always vote Labour. It's the, I can't do anything else, but I need a home. There isn't a, there isn't a political party which now offers a centre-left, as you put it.
2: Well, and, and I, I think, so, so I understand what you're saying. You speak for, um, for many people who have been active in the Labour Party, who fought off militant extremism in the 80s as extremism was fought off in previous decades, will always be Labour, but worry about you know, whether, whether there is a home for them now. Our problem is that most people who vote Labour aren't like you and me, they aren't members of the party, they aren't activists. Um, if, if they don't feel it's a home which they can trust and believe in, which is on their side, which kind of has their view about how the economy works and the welfare state would work and the defence of our country, then they won't vote Labour they will go elsewhere. So I think, unless we can make it feel like a home to you, as I understand it, I think it's very, very hard for Labour to win back those centre ground votes. And that means some people who voted Conservative in 2015. And I think the thing which most worries me rhetorically is when I hear people from my um, party suggest that people who didn't vote Labour in 2015 and voted Conservative or Liberal Democrats, somehow we don't want their votes because, you know, that is, you know, a pure road to irrelevant.
3: I, 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 would, I would just say that um, Ed, being a politician, hasn't said what I think, which is that... Uh, Former <laughs> politician. Yeah, yeah. Um, Former strictly come down the star. I don't think with the...
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
4: That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.
3: The present leadership of the Labour Party, it will be very hard for people like yourself to find that home. And the question is whether there will be a change of leadership before 2020. I actually, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I would, my prediction here, and you can come back in three years' time and I might be wrong, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn will lead Labour into the 2020 election. I don't know how it's going to happen but I don't, because at the moment with the the Liberal Democrats are are flailing around, they may have done well in Richmond tonight, we'll know that, in the early hours, Um, but uh, at the moment they're not providing the home that you seek. I sense that you're saying that the Labour Party doesn't provide that home. At some point it has to become obvious uh, to the the Labour Party in Parliament that things can't go on. My own view is that Owen Smith challenged too early. Shouldn't have happened this past this past year because there'd been a leadership election the previous year. But I cannot see Jeremy Corbyn getting through till 2020. In fact, I'd be amazed if he does.
1: One person who amazingly, I don't think we've mentioned at all uh, tonight is Tony Blair, uh, who today has announced that he's going to open an institute and he's uh, it's not a think tank, he says, although everyone else will view it as a think tank, I and mean, it's not him returning to frontline politics. But is there a question in British politics to which Tony Blair is the answer now?
2: Well, I think there is, um, there is a, a really big question which we need the answer to, which is, that given that we didn't join the single currency and the country voted to leave the European Union in a referendum this summer, what is the relationship which we can have going forward with the the biggest single market with which we trade, um, which will deliver the investment and jobs which we, we need? What is the relationship which we can have as an out which allows us to continue to cooperate on economics, trade, financial services, security, defence, all the things which we need to do. And um, you know, is the only choice, as I think sometimes you feel from a number of senior members of the Cabinet, is to lurch away from that relationship to try and have a new and separate Britain standing aside, or is there a way to... Um, forge a new relationship from the outside. And I don't think we're having that debate. I think the Prime Minister should be leading that debate, and I don't think she is. And um, so we need voices in this debate, charting that course and challenging politics to to, to rise to that uh, challenge. Now, um, there will be some people who will not want to listen to Tony Blair's voice, and there are some people who will. And I hope his institute won't be the only voice, but if it is a constructive, positive voice in this debate,
1: which I think it will be, then that's to be welcomed. To what extent do you, to what extent do you think that uh, some of what Tony Blair says makes sense for the Labour Party, but him saying it actually damages? The calls being made by those who are still in the parliamentary Labour Party. Of
2: course, of course, there are some people for whom it does um, damage. My argument with Tony Blair over the last few weeks would be less about him saying it or not. I actually think, sort of, you know, the one thing which would discredit the standing of Parliament and politics would be for people to lead a charge to somehow just go out to reverse the the result of a referendum which was only held a few months ago. And um, and I. think that that sort of, you know, let's sort of start the campaign to change the decision, I think is, is, is destabilising and, and, and not, not smart politics at all. Who knows how things will unfold yeah. over what is going to be a long and lengthy negotiation. And it may be that the government will carp against very stark and difficult choices. And it may be that the journey our European partners will go on, on issues, for example, around free movement, where my huge frustration was David Cameron ran too far ahead and then couldn't deliver the deal he promised. But who knows how that will unfold over the coming years. And it may be that we can reach an accommodation which is really quite close to how things were before, but in a better way, Um, who knows how that will unfold. But the idea that you go out now and say, I lead the charge to tell the British people they were wrong and change their minds starting today, I think that is, I think that's the wrong approach and I think that will make um, people feel that politics and the people who say those things are sort of elitist and out of touch and not listening to people's desire for change. And um, I think that that's the thing which the New Institute needs to be careful of. It needs to be about making the future work, not trying to um, reverse a decision just taken a few months ago.
3: Yeah, for people who believe in the Remain cause, he's, he, he has acted just too quickly. People. For people who uh, think the uh, decision of the country was wrong on on June the 23rd, the country needs longer to realise what's going on, what's happened. We're seeing, see the first signs today of a slight softening in the government's approach to the hard Brexit that we all hear about. Boris uh, coming out with confusing remarks today about. I don't believe that. Unusually, unusually, about free movement debate. Far more significant today was um, David Davis, the Brexit Minister, giving that very strong indication that uh, the Government was looking at continuing to pay into the EU budget in order to have the best possible access to the single market, which is quite ironic in that we're going to be paying for something we've just said goodbye to. But all of that needs time to sink in. This is if you're from the Remain point of view. Uh, all of that needs time to sink in before the country would even think of having second thoughts. People need to just see what the outcome of these negotiations are going to be. I think Blair should have delayed his initiative for at least 18 months. He's just, it's just come in too soon. Um, the Lib Dems have joined, uh, are saying the same thing. They need to be saying something politically. I think it's perfectly decent stance. For the Lib Dems to be taking they have to be saying something and they are talking about a second referendum. But for somebody like Blair to be trying to undo the the, the will of the electorate at this stage is just wrong, it's the, it's the wrong time to do it. Just gone off to Chicago and made a speech and waited for a call from you.
1: Yeah. Uh, let's take another question. <laughs> 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 uh, the gentleman down at the other Fund.
2: What does the Red Box know?
1: Know nothing, as you will see.
2: You've spoken about uh, Brexit, Trump and the rejection of the liberal world order that's built up over the last 30 years. What are the political compromises and the changes in rhetoric that need to be made over the next, over the coming years, over the coming uh, election cycles that will allow
3: us to keep an open world?
2: When I think back to when I came into politics from the FT 20 years ago, we thought, you know, we already had a globalised capital market with money and investment moving around the world. We um, we were expecting destabilisation and challenge from the globalisation of trade and the fact that you could manufacture cars in Spain or in, as it became Poland and certainly China and India, which would challenge um, goods produced in. Um, in the UK. But I think the thing which we, that none of us foresaw was um, the globalisation would not only be about capital and goods moving, but also people. And people moving on a much greater uh, scale, sometimes fleeing um, from war, but also economically. And if you look at what uh, we've seen in, in Brexit, what we've seen in America, there is a reaction to the economic and political consequences of migration on a much greater scale. Now, my personal view is that to cut ourselves off from the world, to close the borders, to say no to migration, to skills, to students, would be, um, would be a terrible decision. And I don't think, actually, most people in the country want to do that. But on the other hand, to, have, to try and sustain a principle called free movement um, in the European Union has turned out to be uh, catastrophic and impossible. Free movement amongst a small number of countries in the late 1950s is very different from free movement of lower skilled and cheaper labour across a European Union of um, close to 30 countries in the 21st century. And I think um, that you you have to face up to the need in the pragmatic centre to manage migration fairly if you're going to see off those people who um, who will react against migration and that aspect of globalization in a more xenophobic or protectionist or isolationist way and i think politics has done badly at facing up uh, to that i um, i wrote an article in 2010 in the leadership election campaign saying free movement can't last and um at the time it was dismissed as being you know ridiculous view. Um, i think david cameron came far too late to that debate he made a commitment to tens of thousands which couldn't be delivered and started this negotiation on too short a timetable much too late and um if you say to people free movement is good for you which is um actually what the labor party is saying at the moment i'm afraid lots of people in our country who are not extreme just don't agree and they think it's destabilizing economically and also you know to, to their identity and therefore it's something we have to manage and and, and, and face up to. And um, I, I don't think... Uh, I never thought it was possible for us to stay in the European Union um, unless free movement was reformed. I don't think it's possible for us to have a, a good relationship going forward with our European partners unless we find a way to move beyond free movement. I also don't think that the European Union, as a case of whole, is going to um, to, to, to last politically in the end, on a slower timetable to us, with movement on this this scale. And um, what people want is control and grip and management. And they hear free market, free movement, free for all. And people find that scary and destabilizing. And I think at the heart of the failure of the Brexit campaign was on the one hand, people saying, free movement is good for you, which I think ends up sounding elitist, urban and out of touch, or people who said, I promised to reform free movement. I failed, but it's the best I can do. Can you stick with it anyway? And I'm afraid people said to David Cameron, no, um, you promised to reform, you didn't deliver, and therefore we're gonna vote for the other other side. Of course, it's incredibly galling at that point to have Boris Johnson come along and seemingly um, vote fast. Maybe that tells you that Boris Johnson was rather more urban and elitist than um, than he claimed during the referendum campaign. But if we're gonna unite our country, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, because Which are both divided, and the country between ins and outs on the European Union, we have to find a way in which we can handle, for economic security and stability reasons, the movement of people. And, um, and if we don't, then I'm afraid these populist trends are going to accelerate.
1: Does that mean Milanovic's two tiers of citizenship? Does that mean only high skilled immigrants? What are the possible solutions?
2: Well, I mean, David Cameron fought an election in 2015 on one possible solution, which was triggered controls on low-skill migration in the European Union. He asked for a British solution, not a European solution. He failed to get his British solution on a timetable, which was clearly designed for Conservative Party reasons rather than the national or European interest. And then having failed to get it, he then said he sort of didn't want it anyway, and could you vote for, for Remain anyway? Um, but you know, that was one example of the kind of, um, of reform which we could look at. If you look at the figures today, what is striking about the migration figures today is not only that they are record highs and rising, it's that within the numbers, the element which is rising is low-skill migration, and the elements of which are rising are people who are coming to, to to our country without a job before they arrive. And I'm afraid that and is something... And
3: non-European migration. And
2: non-European as well. And that is, yeah. that, that is something which... Um, unless we can show the public... And I'm not talking about the public in, um, in, in Hackney or in Islington, but across
1: the um, country... To pick two country. places at random. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that this is
2: something which we can manage. People want to hear the word control and manage and fair, but they don't want to shut the borders and they don't want to, um, to not welcome people to our country. You can make a contribution. But um, I think the, uh, the failure to grip the issue of free movement by the political classes in our country in the last seven years is, 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 lo- is, is at the heart of why we ended up voting for um, to leave this summer. And I think it was... I, I, I voted for, for remain. I think it was a terrible mistake. And I, I'm frustrated at David Cameron for messing up.
1: It's interesting that Ed uses seven years as the cut off point because lots of people trace it back to 2004 and when which was a mistake Tony so Blair opened I, I, the United
2: yeah. 7 years was because I was referring to the article I wrote in oh, okay, 2010 where I yeah, said, yeah. but actually you could say in 2004 if we had known we going to have migration on this scale we would have had transitional controls but nobody knew we'd have migration on this scale
3: yeah. and that that was a failure it was a failure of understanding and analysis rather than like a political decision mm. my guess is that in the end there'll be some kind of solution or well not a solution but there'll be a proposal emerging that <laughs> migrants from Europe can only come if they show they've got a a job to go to which uh, you know I would have thought so but they um, but that's some way down the line and at the moment one of the problems for Theresa May is that there is there's no real goodwill in the European Union towards us at the moment and there's no sense the reason why this government cannot say what it's doing at the moment and we're getting all these leaks with little bits and pieces coming out is that the government genuinely doesn't know what it's going to be able to get because it's getting no feedback from Europe and on this question of free movement and whatever it certainly needs feedback from Europe because other, other the, the issue is certainly being raised in other European countries but the leaders at the moment are, are in no mood to give Britain anything and it may take two or three years for something to come out.
1: Uh, we're now eating slightly into book signing time but if somebody's got a pressing question, the hand went up there very quickly, this might well be the last question unless anybody else has got a burning a uh, question that came off there, Excellent.
2: Uh, General, can I finish with a
3: slightly serious one, even though I'm an Ipswich Town supporter? <laughs> <laughs> the three of you, journalists, involved in politics,
1: the great interaction between you over the years has been the press has kept government under review. As the power of the press sadly diminishes, Who's going to
2: take over? Who's going to keep a real eye on government? Who's going to be the real opposition to government, which I feel is fading?
1: Well, the
3: obvious answer is the (laughs) times. That's all you need to worry about. I can about. reveal that the gentleman who's just stood up as one of the finest journalists the Times ever had, Mr. Tom Clark, so <laughs> who was sports editor of the Times and of the Daily Mail. Um, so I'll, I'll give my bit, which is that the press can, has to continue to have that role. If, if, if not, we're in serious trouble. But I think what you're getting at is that the Labour Party is certainly not strong enough uh, at the moment to hold the government to account. So who is going to do it? I think newspapers do see it as their job. I think, uh, I think newspapers are giving uh, Theresa May quite a rough time at the moment. Um, given how popular she appears to be with the, the public, the polls have not been dented at all, but the conservative newspapers at the moment are giving her quite, uh, particularly The Times, I would say, and in, in its leaders. been quite tough on the way the government has behaved, the way, it's, uh, the, way the whole Brexit process looks utterly shambolic. Papers are going for the government on that, so there's no answer beyond the press, I fear. I, don't I, th- know what I think, think, think
1: there's something interesting about I mean, the time, because the time is back to remain, it could be sort of quite quick out of the blocks to then be critical of what's happened since, and I think there's still some of the Brexit-backing papers are still not quite sure how to react to what's happening because, obviously, the new dawn was broken on June the 24th, and they don't want to be seen to be undermining that. Um, and they're also not natural bedfellows with the, with the official opposition.
2: The thing which worries me a bit at the moment in some of the commentary about Brexit is that um, the hard left is always wanting to cry betrayal. at Anybody who doesn't agree exactly with what they believe and um, some of the hard Brexiteers want to cry betrayal, um, but anything which doesn't feel sufficiently pure. And actually most people are in the pragmatic centre and they may have voted for in or for out, but what they want is a kind of good sensible outcome for the, the country and that's where, where, where we need um, the government to be put under pressure. I would say that the worst thing which happened to the Blair-Brown government was um, the Conservative Party actually changing the Electoral College under William Hague and not electing either Ken Clarke or William Hague, but instead in Duncan Smith in 2001. Um, We suffered from having a weak opposition which didn't properly hold us to account. And I think it is a real challenge for Theresa May that a bit like with Blair and Brown, the the, the prism and the focus becomes the division within the cabinet, within the government, because the opposition isn't strong enough. And I think that's a bad outcome for the the country. So I agree with the sentiment of your uh, question. I think it's absolutely vital that we have a free, open uh, press which can hold um, governments to account, especially when um, the opposition is not so strong. And even though um, our, our media is changing, we still have that degree of scrutiny. But I think the most important thing I would say, I was doing an event at lunchtime today where somebody asked me um, from the back whether or not I um, agreed with him that the BBC was um, institutionally left-wing. And, um, and I said there have been times where I felt that um, you know, the last few years, and the BBC was a bit, a bit right-wing sometimes in the way in which some people ask me um, questions and put me under pressure. But we live in a society where not only in law and statute, but also in um, culture and its own DNA. We have an institution, the BBC, as a broadcaster, which every day grapples in an attempt to report in a objective and fair way and not to be partial to left or right. And of course it's imperfect. And some of us will sometimes think it goes the wrong way that way or the other, but I think it's, um, it's, it's really, really good that we live in a society which chooses to have and fund a BBC objective news organisation funded by the taxpayer which every day asks those questions and um, so a free vibrant press and um, the BBC and the broadcasting legislation is I think the thing which I cling to as being something which we have in a way that other countries don't have and that's something I think we should value very greatly.
1: Excellent, well, that's a nice, uh, a nice note to, to end on. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen